Hi, and welcome to Axelbank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky, the author of The Cabinet, George Washington, and the Creation of an American Institution. This is her first book. She's also a scholar in residence at the Institute for Thomas Paine Studies. Thanks so much for being here, Dr. Chervinsky. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Well, before we start our con- uh, our interview and our conversation, I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We do not accept contributions over $5, and any monthly amount we raise over $31, which is the exact cost to produce the show, is given to charity. So uh, with that out of the way, this is our third week of our series on the presidency. Two weeks ago, we released episodes on Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Last week, we examined what presidents say and what impact that has had on the American people. And later this month, we're going to talk campaigning and also whether the job is too difficult for one person to do successfully. But this week, the cabinet with Dr. Chervinsky. First of all, before we get to Washington and his involvement and all of that, the cabinet is not explicitly called for in the Constitution. But... Explain what the Constitution does say about getting opinions. That's right. And it's a really important point when we think about the long-term legacy of the cabinet and what it has become and, and what we should maybe think about it. So the Constitution says in Article 2, Section 2, that the president can request written advice from the department secretaries on matters pertaining to their departments. And that was crafted very carefully. So first of all, it was supposed to be written advice so that there could be transparency and a paper trail of who said what and who advocated which position. So that if someone did something badly, voters and citizens could hold that person responsible. So that's the first part. The second part is that the president may request. So the president is not bound by the advice of the department secretaries. The final part is that the requests for advice are supposed to be on issues that the secretaries have expertise in. So they didn't want the Treasury Secretary talking about diplomacy if they didn't know what they were talking about. And so, as you can see, I didn't mention the word cabinet. I didn't mention in-person meetings. I didn't mention gatherings. None of those things are actually in the text of the Constitution. Uh, I didn't think I was going to ask this question, or maybe I, I should say I didn't think of it until now, but how much different would history be if, and our ability to understand history if cabinet secretaries all wrote everything down? <laughs> oh my goodness. It would be, it would be, well, first of all, it would be really fun for historians right. because there's so much that we don't know because they said it or no one took, um, you know, a record of what was happening. Um, but I do think it also would in some ways stymie those close relationships, which is the reason Washington actually created the cabin. We'll get into that more, but it would have, it would have made for a very different type of government. So I want to talk about the terms here, first of all. Um, where does the word cabinet come from? And then where does the word secretary come from? Do they have British roots or are these American words? Yeah, excellent question. So the word cabinet comes from the British. There was a British cabinet at the time, and it was something that Americans were deeply distrusting of that institution. And the reason why was because it was super secretive and there wasn't a lot of transparency. 
And the root of the term is actually super fascinating and kind of gets into our confusion about if you ever try and do a search for cabinet, you're going to get some furniture results in there as well. So the king had a privy council, which was uh, growing in size over the course of the 17th and 18th century, and it was becoming less and less effective, and as anyone who was sat in on a big meeting knows. And so he started pulling some of his closest advisors or his favorites into a small little room that was called the king's cabinet, and it was literally like a closet. And um, so that group became known as the cabinet council. And then eventually mm. council was dropped and it just became known as the cabinet. So Americans 100% borrowed that term from the British. And it really connotates sort of this private secretive meeting where um, not everyone is invited. There isn't always a record of what is being said. Yeah, cabinets do close, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. So, you know, it's behind closed doors. That's, right, the, that's right. really the point. And the word secretary? Yeah, the word secretary um, also comes from the British. So they had, uh, they were sort of referred to as ministers or as secretaries interchangeably. And the Confederation Congress had created departments that were led by um, secretaries of finance or the secretary of war. And they, the difference there was that they reported to Congress as opposed to a president. And, but everyone understood that you really needed to have one person that was sort of monitoring these big issues like war and, and diplomacy and finance and doing it through committee was not the most effective way. And so the constitution doesn't actually create those departments. It just nods to them. And then the first federal department, or excuse me, the first federal Congress in 1789 sort of closed that gap and actually did create departments. Mm, interesting. So, all right. So we've established where this all came from and why, but uh, Washington, uh, you say that historians in the book, you say historians have mistreated the cabinet in their discussions about Washington. Why and how? So most historians generally view the cabinet either as inevitable or they write about it as though it was there on day one. And it's understandable why people might make that mistake because the people that eventually participated in the cabinet were all in office very early on. So uh, Alexander Hamilton, Thomas Jefferson, Henry Knox, Edmund Randolph, they were in their positions by early 1790. So it's kind of un it's uh, easy to understand how someone might think, oh, well, they're in their office. Clearly, there eventually was a cabinet and every president since has had one. So they must have been meeting from the very beginning. But that's very much not the case. And Washington did not convene a cabinet until two and a half years into his administration which reflects a lack of intention from day one and reflects his efforts to try and use all of the options that were available to him and outlined in the constitution before moving to the cabinet. And so one of the things that you wrote about is um, he'd gone to the Senate for some advice on how to deal with the dispute with some Native American um, tribes. Um, and basically, for the lack of a better term, he's disgusted with the counsel that he gets in the Senate. He doesn't, he's not impressed. He's annoyed by them. Um, uh, explain that conflict that he was trying to get advice on and why he went to the Senate in the first place. Sure. So in Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution, it says that the Senate will advise and consent on treaties and appointments. And from a 21st century perspective, it's kind of hard for us to understand 
what the delegates to the Constitutional Convention expected was that the Senate would actually serve as a advisory body on foreign affairs because they were relatively small. There were only 22 people when the Senate first convened in 1789. They were all indirectly elected, so they were, you know, quote unquote, safe advisors. And they seemed like the right sort of people to be advising the president. And so that was really their expectation. And Washington, because he had been at the Constitutional Convention, he was the president, he was there every day, he didn't miss a single session, and he often socialized with the delegates afterwards, had a very clear sense of this expectation. So in the summer of 1789, not long after he took office, when an issue came up that he felt was appropriately under the umbrella of foreign affairs and he wanted some advice, he planned to go meet with the Senate. And he sent them a bunch of information ahead of time. He didn't surprise them. He let them know he was coming. He did meet with the committee to try and figure out some of the details about how he would enter and where he would sit and the sort of things that you don't think about until you have to do for the first time. And when he got there, what he was expecting was that they would debate these issues in front of him so that he could hear from all of the different perspectives and then give him advice on what they thought he should do. And he actually brought a list of questions to sort of guide that debate. Now, the Senate, they were acting like a legislative body. And so they like wanted the Senate, to- from the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, it's not surprising. There was a huge mismatch of expectations. And so the Senate referred the issue to committee and they wanted to talk about it privately and then make a recommendation a couple of days later. So they wanted Washington to actually come back the next week, which is kind of hard for us to imagine the Senate yeah. saying that to the president today. Right, right. But- um, he was really frustrated because foreign policy often requires immediate decision-making. You can't just dawdle around and wait for a committee to make your recommendation. And so he felt that it was just completely ineffective as the sort of counsel he needed on urgent matters. So this reveals something really interesting about Washington, and it's a bit of an aside and more biographical in nature. But you're basically saying this is someone who got their hands dirty, who fully intended to be um, totally invested in the back and forth of government and in the sausage making of federal policy. This is not someone who was sitting back and letting things come to him. Is that about, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the misnomers about Washington as a politician and Washington as president that a lot of people have that misconception is that he was this sort of boring, bust, marble-like figure that kind of just was aloof and sat back. And he was very savvy and very involved in all of this process and had opinions and wanted to hear what people had to say and made these decisions. And that really came from, I, I argue in my book that his decision-making process and his leadership process as president is a reflection of his time as commander-in-chief of the Continental Army during the Revolutionary mm. War. And he had done that same thing with his councils of war. He would bring together his officers. He would share a list of questions. He would ask them to debate in an issue. Of course, the difference is when you're talking about subordinate officers and your commander tells you to do something, you have to do it. Right, you can't right. say, you know, I'll refer it to committee. Um, right. But so that was what worked for him and was really effective was hearing all of that back and forth and that push and pull and almost a way to sort of like stress test the different opinions in real time. So he and was he sort want, of, he oh, wanted uh, to replicate that. Yes. Yeah, so he was sort of frustrated by the idea that he couldn't command the Senate. And so he figures why not just 
put them in my office and I'll command them here. <laughs> uh, uh, so, so uh, uh, and forgive me if that's an oversimplification, but uh, who, d- just briefly, we could do a podcast on each one of them, but who does Washington decide that he wants and basically why? You called them an original team of rivals. Um, describe who he, he points out and selects for each each role. Absolutely. So Secretary of War Henry Knox had been uh, the general of artillery during the Revolutionary War, was one of Washington's favorite and most trusted advisors. He then was the commander of West Point and then was the Secretary of War under the Confederation Congress. So he became the Secretary of War under the new federal government. Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton, probably many listeners will be familiar with this Mm. particular character. Uh, He had been an aide-de-camp to Washington during the Revolution and then an officer. He then was in New York and worked in the state legislature and in Confederation Congress and was an attorney, but he was a really brilliant financial mind, and so he became the Secretary of Treasury. Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson had been the, uh, of course, the one of the primary authors of the Declaration of Independence, had served as governor of Virginia for two terms, then was the minister to France for the United States before coming back and serving as the Secretary of State. And Edmund Randolph was the first attorney general. He had also been an aide-de-camp during the revolution. He then was the attorney general for the state of Virginia and the governor of Virginia, as well as Washington's private lawyer during the warrior and confederation years. So these are people who, oh, oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. So I was going to say they they kind of have a couple of key components. One, they all know Washington and they have a relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Even if it's just like a basic working relationship, like Jefferson and Washington didn't know each other quite as well, but they, they didn't know each other. Two, they were all incredibly experienced and um, knowledgeable, and they brought different sorts of knowledge and experience to the table than Washington had, which was one of the really important points. And then the third thing is they represented, obviously, they were all dead white men. I mean, now they're dead, but um, (laughs) they weren't dead at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, They were all white men um, and, you know, fairly well-off white men, but they came from different states, they came from different backgrounds, they came from different economic and sort of political factions. And so they represented different interests within the nation. And citizens at the time understood this and understood that it was bringing together people with different perspectives to create an administration that represented the entire nation. So we have the people, we have the, the, the group of them. Um, but one of the things I want to ask about is um, uh, we often look at this sprawling federal bureaucracy that we have now, and there are sub-departments within departments, and there are undersecretaries and, and deputy secretaries and people in charge of just little different things, uh, you know, different subsets of each subset. Um, were the departments there back then? Um, so when you say Secretary of War, when you say Secretary of Treasury, um, is it just one guy back then, or were there actual people in um, buildings already working? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the Attorney General did not have a department. The Department of Justice wasn't created until 1870. But the rest of them did have departments, and usually they were quite small, only a couple of clerks or Um, people that reported to them sort of across the country. And had Congress agreed to set them up before there were secretaries and all that? 
Yes. So Congress okay. passed legislation in the summer of 1789, creating the three departments, war, treasury, and state. And then Washington nominated the people in the fall, and then they took office. So there was an understanding that there would be these departments. And for example, the State Department would oversee a couple of clerks, as well as the correspondence with ministers and consuls across the globe. The Treasury Department was the largest because they oversaw the customs officers that were in the various big ports. So Hamilton definitely had, um, if we can think of it as a sprawling bureaucracy, and certainly not by today's yeah, standards, sure. but if there was going to be one, that would be the closest. So they, they did oversee their own little mini departments. And generally, when they were talking to Washington about issues that were just about their department, those conversations were one-on-one -on -one or in writing. And when they came together as a group, it was about an issue that touched on several different departments, like a diplomatic conflict that had you know, economic ties or a domestic rebellion that touched on several different departments. Interesting. So, so let's, we've got them in the room now. We've got the departments, we've got the people. Uh, uh, describe how Washington is running this cabinet. Where are they meeting at that time? Um, from what I remember, uh, the Capitol is in, Wash is in uh, New York. And um, describe, if, even if you know down to the detail of the room that they're meeting in, um, describe how these meetings go down and how Washington presides over them and what we would see if we were in there with them. Absolutely. So the first um, seat of government was in New York, but by the time the cabinet exists, because again, it doesn't exist for two and a half years, right. they're in Philadelphia. Okay. And so Washington has rented a private home from Robert Morris on the corner of 6th and High Streets or 6th and Market Streets. The streets are still there today. And it is one of the largest private homes in the city. However, like 35 people live in it, including enslaved individuals, hired servants, Washington's family members, his private secretaries, their wives, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a very large home, but it's very big and it's very busy and it's very full. There is a small room on the second floor that was the president's private study. It was about 15 by 21 feet, which um, is a good sized room, but not when you consider all of the furniture and all of the uses that Washington employed for this room. So it had to be his office. He had a large five foot across desk that was made in France. He had a globe. He had a special chair. He had an iron stove to heat it in the winter. He also used this space as his um, dressing space. So he had a dressing table. He had a mirror. He had at least three bookshelves. So this was a room that was, by 21st century standards, incredibly stuffed with furniture. And He's would have living been a... in there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, it's the only place that he really has privacy because every, every place else is either a workspace or a social space and is communally used by the family, visitors, or the people that were working in the home. He didn't sleep in there, though. No, he didn't sleep in there. Okay. His bedroom right. was across the hall. Yeah. Um, so this space, unfortunately, the house no longer exists. It was torn down in the 18, in the 19th century because there was some confusion about which house was actually the house he used. Oops. So yeah, I know. Oopsies. Yeah. Um, so we've been able to recreate some of these details using different sorts of records. So when the secretaries came in, it's likely the house was full of chairs um, like, you know, basic wooden chairs for when guests came or when they had parties. And so they were probably lining the hallways most of the time. 
And so when the secretaries came over for a meeting, they probably would bring in a small table and some of these chairs for the conversation. So you're adding more furniture <laughs> to this space. And then you have to imagine that these were, especially by the standards of the time, not small guys. Washington was quite tall. Jefferson was six feet. Um, Knox was almost six feet and sort of notoriously rotund. Um, and so you have five guys in this room, which is full of furniture. Most of their meetings took place in the summer because that's sort of the cycle of government at the time. So it's hot. It's in Philadelphia. Yeah. There's no air conditioning. And so, for example, in 1793, when they met up to five times per week, sometimes for several hours at a time in this space to talk about the neutrality crisis, and Hamilton and Jefferson already hated each other. And then they were locked in this room. And you can just imagine the tension and the very toxic energy that was coming out of this space. And then we know from Jefferson's records that Hamilton didn't always curtail his words. So there are some records in August where they're having daily meetings and Hamilton gives what Jefferson calls a jury speech for three quarters of an hour. And he was prone to gesticulate wildly and sometimes to pace. So imagine being locked in this room with all this furniture with these people that you don't particularly like necessarily. And one person decides to talk for 45 minutes and pace around the room. And so it is, <laughs> you can imagine Jefferson's head just exploding. Um, so that was what the environment was like. And it's not just that they disagreed with each other, but they were trying to push federal policy in their direction. And so they got heated and, um, did, did it ever have to, did it ever get to a point where people said, Hey, you got to break it up? Well, so, I mean, the challenge of course, is that they didn't take minutes of the meeting. Oh. And so we, we do have records that Hamilton and Jefferson took, especially of these conversations. And there are some times when Washington would, if they've met for a couple of hours, he would break up the meeting and they would go have a family dinner. And I'm using air quotes because this was considered the official family. So after the dinner, they would go back and resume the conversation. And there's some evidence to suggest that Washington hoped that the socializing would sort of smooth over hurt feelings, help them remember that they were on the same side. Uh, it didn't work. And there's some, some really ominous notes at like, and so the meeting ended at the end. So um, it didn't really, wasn't really effective. So is Washington part of the back and forth or is he sitting back watching them debate and then making his decision and saying, okay, now get out of my office. <laughs> <laughs> um, more of the latter. So he would usually convene a meeting ahead of time by requesting their presence the next day. And he would send out a list of questions or topics that he wanted to discuss. And then he would bring those questions and use those to sort of serve as the agenda for the meeting. And normally he sat back and asked for their input. He didn't usually come to a meeting with his decision or his mind already made up. And he wanted to get their, you know, both sides, get all of the information, allow them to duke it out. And then if they disagreed, which was more often than not, he would ask for a written opinion afterwards to allow them to include anything they might have forgotten to say and to allow him to make the decision sort of quietly in his own time after studying this information. How did the secretaries see their roles in serving Washington? Are they trying to persuade him to persuade each other or to really push 
federal policy in the way that they wanted? Um, it really depended on the conversation. They, by 1792, they pretty much understood, and I'm thinking primarily of Hamilton and Jefferson, that they were not going to agree with one another. And so the conversations were intended to convince Washington or to demonstrate the flaws in each other's argument. And so when these conversations did happen, the, an issue had come up that Washington needed guidance on. And so whether that was whether he should sign a bill or if he should send troops to a certain um, insurrection point or how he should welcome a French minister, these decisions had come to his desk and he wanted their input. And so they were trying to convince him about how to act. Now, there were times that, for example, Hamilton had put forth financial legislation and Congress was debating it and Washington was trying to decide what to do and he would ask for their input. And so on that particular moment, they were pushing for either the policy that they had advocated or against that. But more often than not, it was they were trying to persuade Washington to go with what they thought was the best course of action. I've already um, uh, said this uh, in this episode because um, you could absolutely do a podcast on any number of things that we've already talked about. But in terms of the big events that they handle, and you could do a a whole half hour, an hour on each one of them, talk about a little bit here. Um, You've got the neutrality crisis, you've got the Whiskey Rebellion, you've got Jay Treaty. Um, just run through a couple of the events that they try to handle and how the cabinet attacks these things real quick. Yeah. So those are, I think the really big three and those are sort of the three um, case studies that I include in the book. The neutrality crisis occurs in 1793 when France had declared war on Great Britain and it quickly spiraled into an international conflict. And so the United States had to figure out how to stay out of it and how to be neutral. And that was something that they had never done before and was an incredibly complicated matter. There were a lot of domestic legal questions. There were a lot of international legal questions. And so basically the cabinet was tasked with figuring out the answers to all of those issues. And um, it it basically took them about 10 months to debate everything all the way through, come up with a list of rules of neutrality, and then Congress codified that into legislation the following spring. And, you know, you might say, okay, well, it's neutrality. How hard is it? But just to give one brief example, the French minister, um, citizen Edmond Charles Genet, arrived in Philadelphia and was basically outfitting privateers, which were private ships that were given basically a license from a foreign nation to go attack that nation's enemies. So he had all of these privateers that he was arming, even though Washington had said you couldn't do that. And he was sending them out and they were capturing British ships and bringing them back into Philadelphia. And the British minister definitely noticed that this was happening and it was happening six blocks from Washington's house. So they had to figure out like, how do you respond to such flagrant (laughs) disrespect to foreign policy? So that was just one issue. Um, So the next one, the Whiskey Rebellion takes place in 1794. And Hamilton had passed, Hamilton had encouraged Congress to pass a excise tax on the distillation of whiskey. And it was very unpopular in the Western regions of Pennsylvania, Virginia, Kentucky, and a violent protest broke out in the summer of 1794. And Washington and the cabinet had to figure out, were they gonna leave the issue to Congress? Were they gonna convene an emergency session? Were they gonna leave the issue to the states to decide? 
And if they were going to take action, what was that action going to be? So that was a very important moment in figuring out sort of presidential authority over domestic crises. And then the last one is the Jay Treaty. And it wasn't so much that the Jay Treaty was a source of debate, it was what happened afterwards in that uh, the Senate had ratified the treaty and Washington signed it, but there was a clause in the treaty that required the United States government to form a, um, a committee to adjudicate pre-war debts that Americans owed to British, or excuse me, British merchants. And that took money. And so the House saw this as an opportunity um, because the House had a, a larger contingent of Democratic Republicans who hated the treaty as an opportunity to scuttle it. And so they requested all written materials pertaining to the negotiations of the treaty as a way to try and embarrass the administration. And after deliberating with the cabinet, Washington said no and asserted executive privilege for the first time, which anyone who reads newspapers knows that that is still a very important issue today. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, does President Washington prove himself an effect? This is sort of a judgment call, but I guess I'll ask sure. you to make it. Does he prove himself an effective leader of the cabinet? And I guess the, I guess properly that, that question is, um, is he able to take their advice and take the advice and make it into effective national policy? Yes. So Washington managed the cabinet very well for his purposes. It served him very well in that he got the advice that he needed and the support that he needed when he asked for it. The people involved didn't always feel that way. Jefferson kind of hated these debates because he notoriously hated conflict. So he felt that the cabinet was really negative under Washington's administration, especially in the second term. But from Washington's perspective, it was very effective and very helpful to have these different perspectives and these different opinions. And he counseled others to try and bring in different ideas to their cabinets as well. Um, the only area where I would say he failed a little bit as an administrator was he thought that Jefferson and Hamilton would follow his guidance and sort of remain apolitical. And then once he dropped hints that he was unhappy that they were engaging in political activity, he thought they would stop and he did not give them a direct order to stop. And so they didn't. And so I think that's one area where he didn't perhaps exercise as much control as he could have and perhaps should have. So you mentioned politics here. Um, another thing not in the constitution are political parties. And you argue that the cabinet helps to form political parties in America. So describe how that happens and whether mm -hmm. Washington is on board with that. Sure. Um, so Hamilton and Jefferson are sort of the leaders of the emerging two political parties that come out of the 1790s. And they went into the administration with sort of diametrically opposed ideas about what the nation should be. Everything from who is sort of the best type of citizen to where the government should invest its resources and what sort of industry it should get behind to what foreign nation should be the closest ally. So they were already sort of on either side of the spectrum. But by smooshing them together in this room all of the time, they both became convinced that the other was a huge threat to their vision of what the nation should be. 
and was um, a flawed American and a flawed patriot. And their personal dislike uh, definitely festered in this space. So we can't really, it's a very much a hypothetical and it's kind of hard to prove, but I speculate that had these people not spent as much time with each other, they wouldn't have grown to hate each other with such a violent passion. And it's very likely that political parties would have developed anyway because there were these two differing views, but it would have taken a lot longer and they would have both felt less motivated to pursue the sort of political infrastructure that accelerated that political development. Mm -hmm. Now, Washington is an interesting case because he was firmly opposed to political parties when he came into office. And he initially ignored reports that both of them were engaging in some of this politicking behavior. And then once he became aware of it, he constantly was urging them to see the best in each other and defended both of them to each other and really tried to stay above it. His farewell address encourages the American citizens to avoid partisan, um, partisan lines and to remember that they have more in common, that they have different from one another. Um, but he was also by that point pretty much an avowed Federalist because he thought that the Democratic Republicans or the Jeffersonian Republicans or just the Republicans, depending on what document you look at at any given moment, um, he thought that they were fueling anarchy, that they were trying to damage the federal government and that they were dangerous. And he also resented deeply their criticism of him and his sacrifice and his public service. Uh, I don't love engaging in this type of history from what I'm, what I'm about to ask you because it's impossible to really know. But so I guess I would ask, is it helpful to ask the question what Washington would say if he could see that there are now 15 cabinet secretaries managing federal departments, some of which are over a million people or, you know, well over. I mean, you, you know, you've got federal departments that are, um, I mean, the, just the Department of Homeland Security alone, just the, um, you know, just the defense department. I mean, these are departments that have millions of people in them, some of them. Um, what would he say? Uh, do we have any clues? Let's put it that way. Do we have any clues mm -hmm. as to what he would say if he could see the size and scope of this government now, the executive branch of the government? Well, I do think that he would, I don't think he would object to the proliferation of departments per se, as long as there was a good reason to have them. Uh, he was all for new positions and reorganizing of things. He was constantly, I mean, in terms of his own personal life, he was constantly tinkering with farming practices and new types of crops. And so innovation per se was not something he was opposed to. He also believed strongly in the role of Congress in checking the presidency. So in that letter I mentioned where he asserted executive privilege for the first time, he said, if this was a case of impeachment, it would be different and I would turn over all of my materials. So he understood and supported and defended Congress's right to check the president and to serve as a um, way that the public could maintain some oversight on the executive branch. Um, he would have definitely advocated that presidents be creative in obtaining advice because he did not care for large groups of, um, you know, advisors. And so I think he probably would have a pretty good understanding that a 15-person cabinet meeting would not be the most effective way to uh, either get consensus or to obtain opinions. And so 
like he did at the end of his presidency when he felt that cabinet meetings were not as effective as one-on-one -on -one consultations or even written advice from people outside of the administration, he would have encouraged the presidents, whether they're you know 20th century presidents or current presidents, to find a way of obtaining advice that worked for them. One name we didn't hear in your um, in our discussion of the cabinet here is John Adams. Um, the vice mm -hmm. president is not part of it back then. In recent years, the VP has become a major part of the cabinet. Um, that's by ch the president's choice. Um, uh, what do you make about that addition to the cabinet? Um, and I guess also just when does the VP start to be treated as a member of the cabinet? It's not so very recently. Yeah, absolutely. So it's kind of hard to know why Adams was excluded because Washington never wrote it down and didn't really tell anyone what he thought about this. Um, there's some evidence that he distrusted John Adams' political savvy after Adams had advocated for a very royal sounding title for the president in the summer of 1789, which was known as the title controversy. So there's some evidence that he sort of distrusted his political judgment and sort of wanted to distance himself a little bit. There's also some evidence that perhaps he saw the vice president as more a part of the Senate, and so it would be inappropriate to invite as him As it says into, in the Constitution, yeah. As it says in the Constitution. I don't find that argument as compelling because mm. early on in the presidency, Washington solicited Adams' written advice several times um, in the first year of his office. And then at the end of his presidency, he does the same thing in the final years. He frequently would ask Adams' advice in writing on a couple of big issues. Um, there, it is also possible that they, they socialized regularly. So they went to the theater together. Adams regularly attended dinner at the Washington's house. And so it is possible that they talked about these issues in person. We unfortunately don't have a record of those conversations. But for whatever reason, Washington didn't want those conversations included in the cabinet. And that has really been more the rule than the exception. As you mentioned, it hasn't been until quite recently that vice presidents have actually participated. It's more of a reflection of a president's relationship with the vice president than an institutional change. And most presidents haven't had good relationships with their vice president and have been very content to sort of keep them at arm's length. Couple of rapid fires for you here, three, three of them. Uh, first of all, if you could snap your fingers and require one thing of each cabinet secretary as they come in, if you could require the president to, to say, all of you will possess this quality, what should each cabinet secretary have in Lindsay Trevinsky's world? Uh, expertise in the subject matter that they're supposed to know something about. And, and I believe it or not, they all don't have that. <laughs> no, they don't. And, you know, and also like experience in that field. So if you're going to be the department, if you're going to be the secretary of education, I think you probably should have worked in education, hypothetically, as an example, of course. Yes, as an example. Um, and, and there are there are many cabinet secretaries oh, yes. throughout history, not so just many. This, that, that don't belong there, or at least in terms of their qualifications. Secondly, um, how could the cabinet better serve not us, but the president? She's thinking, folks. Yeah, the, this, these, are, these are really good questions. Um, no one has ever asked me that. Um, how we could can come back cabinet... to it. I got one more <laughs> if you want to. 
Um, yeah, let me give me the last one. Okay. And I'll come the back last to that. one I gotta, is, I gotta think on that. I, I asked Alexis Coe this question. Um, she's the a great biographer of George Washington. Um, but I want to ask you too: if you could redesign the Washington Monument, what would you? How would it look? How would you do it? Oh my goodness. These are such creative questions. Um, well, there are definitely some things I would keep the same. Um, it needs to be taller than anything else in DC because that's really the point. Washington not only gave his name to the city and helped design the city, but he left so much of his legacy through the creation of countless precedents and creating the office and is often not incorrectly referred to as the father of the country. So the is really, really good. And the central location is really, really good. The shape is a little bit more problematic and um, is perhaps not suggestive of the themes and ideas that we want to invoke. So I would recommend something more along the lines of there's the statue in the center of Trafalgar Square in London that's sort of a pillar with a statue on top. So what I would say is do a pillar, but then like put Lady Liberty or something on top. That would invoke the themes that Washington stood for and fought for his entire life. So the cabinet, if how could it better serve the president? Not this president, but generically the president. Sure. Um, I have increasingly become interested in a more parliamentary-based system. I think that the cabinet is most effective when it speaks for the American people broadly, when it is um, diverse when it represents different experiences and backgrounds and expertise and is able to represent the president as such um, onto an international stage. Um, one way that it could do that is if it actually had some pull in Congress. It would kind of, you know, obliterate the separation of powers thing, but yeah. we're not really paying attention to that right now anyway, because it's not like Congress is actually pushing back on the administration. So I do wonder if it would be really interesting if. The secretaries were selected from members of Congress, like in Britain, to wow. see so that there would be some of that, you know, pull and some of that sway and um, also a requirement that the president work with Congress because you have to have these coalitions. I don't know exactly how that would work. And I'm certainly not, um, you know, of Madison's government designing caliber, but I do think there are some aspects of our administration and our government right now that are broken and need to be revisited. And whether that's through substantial reform or um, reform of the existing system, I guess is up for the American people to decide. But just because it was written down in 1787 doesn't mean it has to be what it is today. Uh, the people who crafted it at the time understood it as a series of compromises and understood that it was flawed and hoped that future generations would improve on that design. And frankly, there's nothing we could do to better honor their memory than to try and improve on that design. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning, uh, you are at the Institute for Thomas Paine Studies. So tell me, uh, tell us what you do at the Tom Institute for Thomas Paine Studies and what they do uh, at large. Yes. So the Institute for Thomas Paine Studies is at Iona College. It is uh, looks at sort of the life of Thomas Paine more broadly. So the age of revolutions, the founding of the American government and the American system, um, and sort of all aspects of what that means. So it's not just about Thomas Paine, although there is some of that too. Mm -hmm. um, I, and what do you do? 
yes, I started this position because I was ready for a change. And you ready started to the something. position. You started the position. Yes, I'm the it. first right, yeah. scholar in residence. Um, I was ready for a change and ready to do something new and excited to have the opportunity to pursue a bunch of different projects. So I'm currently working on a podcast for them called Public History in a Virtual Age that explores all of the different ways that amazing public history work is being done from podcasts to museum curators to oral historians to teachers, all these different ways that people can communicate history to a broad public audience, and then how they are doing so while we are all online. And what are some of the innovative ways that people are using technology to um, share their work and share their projects. And so I'm hopeful that that conversation will be uh, really inspiring for people in the field, but also for people who wanna know more about fun ways to learn about history. And I'm grateful that they are sort of backing me in doing that because I am, like I said, starting this sort of from scratch and hmm. uh, seeing where where we can go and the sky's kind of the limit. You know who that reminds me of? Who? George Washington. <laughs> <laughs> That's so fun. That's I love good, that. Right? I had never really thought that of that, great? but yes, it's true. I was like, where have scratch. I heard this before? Uh, <laughs> Dr. Lindsay Trevinsky, author of The Cabinet, George Washington, and the creation of an American institution. Thank you so much for being here. Certainly check out that book and her Twitter profile at L.M. Trevinsky. I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. It's patreon.com slash History. We do not accept contributions over $5 and any monthly amount we raise over $31, which is the exact cost to produce the show, is given to charity that promotes literacy and children's education. Remember to check out our previous episodes in our presidential series uh, here in October. Next week, we're going to talk with A.J. Bain, the author of Dewey Defeats Truman, a book that explores one of the greatest campaigns and most interesting ones in American history, and one that took on a much different tone than the one we see today because that one was so hands-on. And thank you for listening to Axelbank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Be sure to check us out on Twitter and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks.